Hello, hello, hello everyone. This is Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 37 of Unformidable, where we take a look back at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's ever-so-quirky history. Time, history, everything seems pretty meaningless at the moment, so I just wanted to find a story and a player that I thought would be fun to recount. I don't have metaponents or current Mets drama to try and find an analog for in the past. In this case, I just personally wanted, thought we could all enjoy uh, something random and fun. So today we'll take a voyage not just to the diamond, but also to books and movies. For unless and until the deal gets revived and J-Lo does wind up owning a piece of the New York Mets, today we're going to take a look back at the Mets personage who I would have to guess has the most extensive IMDb page in franchise history. In writing a memorial tribute upon this player's death in 2011, the New York Times' Douglas Martin, in a lovely little article Elegy noted that he broke the mold. He was once a young prospect who never lived up to expectations, but still made his way around the major leagues, and wound up figuring in some memorable moments in baseball history. Each might have made him only a footnote. Together, they made him into something more. And this seems like a very apt tribute for, even if he wasn't much of a player on the ball field, Greg Goosen makes up for it by featuring in numerous anecdotes in Myth's history, and as mentioned in that quote, in a couple of interesting moments, or almost moments, in baseball history, before he moved on to be a player in the more Shakespearean sense of the word, moving on to a career as a stuntman, stand-in, and actor. Not quite a baseball zealot, but there's still an awful lot that made Greg Goosen unformidable. Gregory Bryant Goosen was born December 14, 1945, in Los Angeles. He was the fourth of ten children from an Irish Catholic family in L.A. His father was an LAPD detective turned private investigator, and his older brothers ran a boxing training ring called Ten Goose Professional Boxing. And all of these factoids will come back into play later in the story, I do promise you beyond just giving us some background. Greg was a fine athlete as a young man. Goose, as the young high school star, was of course dubbed, starred in baseball and football at Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, California. A sturdy fellow, he played linebacker and center, earning a football scholarship from USC, so perhaps hearing those football positions, probably not surprising that he wore the tools of ignorance as a power-hitting high school catcher and he eschewed that college scholarship to sign with his hometown Los Angeles Dodgers for what I imagine was an incredibly high at the time bonus touching the six-figure range, according to most reports at the time. And that looked like a pretty good investment at first. At age 18 in 1964, the young catcher looked pretty good in rookie ball, hitting eight homers and recording a 1001, 1.001 OPS over 121 at-bats in rookie ball, which led the then-prominent Baseball Digest in a March 1965 scouting report review declaring of Goosen he was a big fellow who likes to play, hits well and with power, major league potential. And the Dodgers probably agreed. Even at that young age, he was invited to spring training in 1965, and Goosen 
talked often after his career about how memorable it was, even that briefly, to be able to locker next to Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Tommy Davis. Clearly, he was seen as having a future with the Dodgers, but that future abruptly ended in spring of 1965. On April 9th, the waiver draft, which at the time allowed the more ineffectual franchises and Ineffectual certainly described our beloved Mets back then to purchase players after their initial Bush League seasons, and the Mets nabbed the prospect Goosen from the Los Angeles Dodgers to add to their struggling franchise for a mere $8,000. And that certainly looked like a brilliant move all through 1965, as Goosen hit a solid 305 with 24 homers and 84 RBIs in Class A Auburn, of the New York Penn League. He even earned himself a late-season call-up cup of coffee in the September roster expansion, making his Major League debut while still a teenager on September 3rd, 1965, singling in his first Major League at bat off of Ray Sadecki and going two for four in his start that day. Goosen hit his first homer before turning 20 as well, that on September 25th, off of Bo Belinsky of the Phillies in the top of the sixth inning in old Connie Mack Stadium. That homer extended the Mets' lead to 3-0 in a 4-1 victory that, that increased the franchise's record to a robust 49-107. So 1965 was certainly another tough year for the expansion franchise, but extremely small sample size and all, it couldn't have been hard to get excited about a young 19-year-old catcher holding his own in 11 major league games, going 9 for 31, hitting 290, and homering before all before turning 20. I imagine I would have been irrationally excited if I were young, or probably even this age in 1965, about a 19-year-old catcher looking that good in the majors. And I wouldn't have been alone in promoting the upcoming 1966 season uh, the Mets minor league player development czar Eddie Stansky noted that perhaps the brightest prospect aside from Tug McGraw and Dick Selma is Greg Goosen. He could catch 125 games for the Mets next year. So they were expecting 125 games out of the 20-year-old catcher. Listener, I'm sure you're already guessing that prediction didn't quite come true. And sadly, Goosen wouldn't catch 125 games for the Mets across his four seasons with the franchise, appearing only in 99 games. But he certainly didn't go unnoticed as a Met, nor did he go unnoticed after leaving the Mets. For a pretty well-regarded prospect, the Mets coaches current and past took, uh, let's say, a tough love approach with Goosen as two of the most quotable figures in baseball history unleashed two of their more notable quotes in observations about the goose in 1966 spring training. Uh, at the end of, tail end of the 65 season, the Mets had brought in Yogi Berra for the end of his career and to take over as a coach. Tab to mentor the young Goosen as his likely successor at catcher, uh, Berra famously turned to Goosen in spring training, urging him to take 20 more minutes of batting practice, saying, it's cold today, and besides, you could stand to lose the weight. That's a less, less beloved, uh, less warm-hearted beloved yogi than uh, many of his yogiisms have led me to uh, think of him as. But perhaps the more notable quote was from Casey Stengel, who had a particularly famous piece of his Stengelese 
though he had retired as Met manager the previous season, Stengel was, of course, still a presence with the franchise for years thereafter. And visiting spring training in 66, he pointed at Goosen and said, Goosen is only 20, and in 10 years, he has a chance to be 30. Goosen and most everyone else regarded the admark as quite a slight. I mean, who knows with Casey? Yeah, let's face it, it, the Mets were likely being run by someone whose mental acuity had seen better days in those early seasons. But regardless, Yogi and Casey's, shall we say, skepticism proved true, because despite the high hopes, Goosen never really developed into more than a quad-A type player. In 66, he had a great offensive season in AAA Jacksonville, hitting 25 more homers, but struggled in his brief time called up with the Mets. Uh, that pattern repeated itself, repeated itself in 67 and 68. Goosen rode the shuttle, primarily playing in the minors, and those seasons he wasn't even that successful offensively in the minors to boot. So the hitting was at a standstill, but the Mets were still interested in his bat. However, he was never regarded as the strongest defensive catcher, so they did try him out some at first base. And it was at first base that Goosen had perhaps his most memorable Met moment on the field when on May 31st, 1968, the St. Louis Cardinals' Larry Jaster had a perfect game going against the Mets into the eighth inning, and with two outs in the eighth, Goosen prevented Jester from making history with a clean line drive single to left, leaving Jester a scant four outs away from making history. Goosen got his most uh, plate appearances a Met in 1968, 106 at-bats, 38 games, all but one of them at first base, his last major league game as a catcher also taking place that year, uh, but he struggled mightily with the bat, hit 208, uh, no home runs for someone known for their power, and the Mets had had enough and gave up on Goosen. He unfortunately was not able to be part of the miraculous 1969 Mets campaign, as he got traded in the offseason before the 69 season starts to the expansion Seattle Pilots. Now, the Pilots' one ill-fated season in Seattle was incredibly notable for literature as perhaps the most famous baseball book of them all, Ball Four by Jim Bouton, who was written largely about that season. And it was a notable season for Goosen as well, who wound up leading that team in batting with a 309 average over part of the season. Uh, The year started in typical fashion, typical baseball fashion for Goosen as he started the season in in the AAA PCL. He excelled in Vancouver that year in AAA, hitting uh, 18 homers and batting 298 over 298 games, and was called up by the Pilots on July 25th to replace Mike Keegan, who was off to complete military service. Mostly platooning at first base, the Goose had the most impressive run of his major league career. Over 52 games, he went 43 for 139 for that aforementioned 309 batting average, stroking 10 homers and driving in 24 runs in those 52 games. Goosen's slash line that year, 309, 385, 597, a 982 OPS, 175 OPS plus, numbers he would never come close to, had never come close to before and never would come close to since, 
Goosen recorded 1.2 war, according to Baseball Reference over his career, 2.2 war in 1969. Uh, so pushing himself into the positive with that one run in Seattle. I don't know much about the pilot's ballpark. I don't know if it was hitter-friendly or not. I should look that up, or I wonder if anyone has any idea. But uh, regardless, it was a magical little run for the Goose. And perhaps by chance, perhaps because he did so well that year, perhaps just by nature of what a character he seemed to be, Boughton made many references to Goosen in Ball 4, comparing him to a bouncer in an English pub, calling him a flake, and telling a story about a time in AAA when Goosen was catching, the batter bunted to the pitcher, Goosen doing his job yelled first base to the pitcher, the pitcher threw to second, everyone was safe, uh, Goosen threw a fit, but Boughton apparently shouted from the dugout, Goose, come on, he had to consider the source. Very much the Rodney Dangerfield of baseball, this poor man. Casey, Yogi, Boughton, the Goose just couldn't get any respect, could he? Even after a solid 1969 with the Seattle Pilots. He spent the first part of 1970 in Milwaukee, where the Pilots had been rechristened as the Brewers, and was traded midseason to the Washington Senators, where he wound up playing the last major league game of his career on the last day of that season in October, October 1st, 1970, flying out to center as a pinch hitter off of Jim Palmer in his final at bat in a game that was won by the Orioles on a Davey Johnson walk-off single for a little Met reference there. Goosen was, even though he was done in Major League Baseball, he was not done in baseball and he was far from done in life. Even without playing another Major League Baseball game, Goosen managed to become a footnote to another notable baseball moment. In the 1970 offseason, he was traded to the Phillies as part of a larger deal for Kurt Flood, a trade that took place, of course, very famously after Flood refused to report to the Phillies after being traded there by the Cardinals in a situation that would begin the landmark lawsuit to increase the players' bargaining rights, rights that I hope they continue to exercise fervently in the coming days, as why would I ever not take labor side over ownership? Why would anyone who's not fucking ownership, actually? But anyway, Goosen spent two more years in baseball, all in the minors and in the Mexican League, before hanging them up. By his own account, after retiring, Goosen had appeared in over two dozen different teams when you count the major, minor, and Mexican leagues. Just 24 at that point in time. Uh, 25 when, actually I guess 26 after the 1972 season, but a young 26-year-old man, veteran of 20-plus major league baseball teams, How was Greg Goosen going to spend his post-baseball life? And here, his life just continues to be fascinating. Not that everyone's life isn't fascinating, but uh, rather than your typical post-baseball coach, manager, kids grew up to play ball, whatever, Greg Goosen worked many odd jobs after baseball, including as a detective at his father's detective agency, Uh, From that to telephone marketing to, at one point, following in the footsteps of one of the great fictional athletes of all time in Selling Women's Shoes. 
but ultimately Greg Goosen didn't follow in the great Al Bundy's footsteps because he eventually came to work at his brother's aforementioned boxing gym, where one day he took a fateful meeting with Gene Hackman, who wanted to be trained and do some research for his upcoming 1988 boxing movie, Split Decisions. The movie might not have been a hit. It has a stellar 26% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 5.2 out of 10 on the more lenient imdb.com, but it was a huge deal for Greg Goosen as he and Gene Hackman became fast friends as he trained him in boxing. Hackman asked Goosen if he would want to be his stand-in in the movie, and it worked out famously as thereafter Hackman had Goosen written into almost all of his movie contracts, where he, according to an article in Sports Illustrated, got a lavish salary, first-class accommodations, and airfare. Uh, His job as stand-in primarily involves standing on Hackman's mark while the movie lights are being set up. I've had to stay on the same spot for three straight hours, says Goosen, but it never gets boring. Every day I think how lucky I am to be with Gene Hackman. And Goosen parlayed that opportunity into an actual acting career. I mean, he he played minor roles in many films, primarily, but not exclusively, Hackman vehicles. Uh, he had work as a stuntman, as the stand-in, but also would have small parts occasionally with one or two lines of dialogue in a number of movies over between 1988 uh, all the way up into 2001 or two. In addition to his nine credits as miscellaneous crew as Hackman's stand-in, Goosen has 18 credits as an actor on his IMDb page, and yes, more than half of them are in Hackman vehicles, but starting in 1989 with the, in the movie The Package, in which he played soldier in Provost Marshall's office, uh, extending up actually until 2003 in a movie called NBT, and one of his few named characters named Pat. Uh, Goosen had small parts, generally just stand-ins, or movies where he had one or two lines uh, in notable movies such as Unforgiven, Mr. Baseball, which I do not believe Gene Hackman was in to the best of my memory, uh, The Quick and the Dead, Waterworld, Get Shorty, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and The Royal Tenenbaums, my personal favorite of the Goosen oeuvre. Uh, Again, very few of these are named characters in Unforgiven. He was fighter. In Tenenbaums, he was billed as, in the credits, gypsy cab driver. And of course, there was his memorable back-to-back stint as a prison inmate in the chamber as J.B. Gullet, and as Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil as prison cell lunatic. I mean, even in small parts, that's uh, lengthy and in some cases impressive, uh, certainly notable, uh, notable movies in there, uh, notable IMDb resume for a former catcher. Back at that baseball career that predated the acting career, it was uh, perhaps fitting for someone who was a notable figure in Ball Four that Goosen in interviews after playing said that he played best with a slight hangover, which means that apparently he wasn't drinking enough, which actually seems contrary to some of the analogies and stories that he shared 
in interviews. As I said earlier, you could think of Goosen as a bit of a quad A player, and in fact, he appeared in 705 minor league games and had 2,376 at-bats in the minors, uh, hitting 130 home runs, driving in 454, and hitting 275. Not quite Crash Davis, but uh, pretty pretty solid numbers. If those were major league numbers, that would be amazing. But for his major league career, not quite so much. Uh, Goosen hit 241. Uh, his slash line was 241, 316 on base percentage, 383 slugging, uh, which gave him a 699. OPS, and actually 100, uh, pretty much average OPS plus uh, over his career. He recorded his most games as a New York Met, 99 games played, and actually his most at-bats as a Met, 238 over those four seasons with the franchise. Uh, As a Met, he was significantly less successful, hitting 202, uh, only a 269 slugging percentage, uh, 532 OPS, and a disappointing 57 OPS plus for someone with whose bat the Mets were quite enamored as a young player. And looking at that career as a whole, Goosen had a, as I said, a 1.2 war according to baseball reference, negative 0.7 as a Met, and negative 1 overall if you take away that brief little stint in Seattle. Uh, He hit 13 homers in his career, uh, 111 hits in 460 at-bats for a 241 batting average. Even if that was slightly disappointing for someone as promising and with the potential that Goosen had, man, did he parlay it into a memorable, uh, memorable career, if you will, and certainly a memorable life. And the anecdotes and the amusing stories about Goosen don't stop at the end of his career. Uh, in an interview or a documentary about the, an interview for a documentary about the Seattle Pilots, Goosen, of course, waxed very nostalgic about his time there. Not surprising, given how successful he was, telling the interviewer, "I would have played here my whole career." To which Tommy Davis, who was also on the Pilots, interrupted the interview to blurt out, you did, Goose. And uh, in 2009, Howard Megdal, uh, in his book, The Baseball Talmud, listed Goosen as the seventh greatest Jewish first baseman ever, which uh, became quite a surprise to Goosen, as you may recall, as he was raised Irish Catholic. And he uh, later found out in talking to Megdal about it, that Goosen used a very expansive definition as Goosen's father was born Jewish. Goosen was friends with Pete Rose, who attended his funeral, uh, That, as noted, friends with Jim Bouton, and obviously Gene Hackman's best buddy. I, I mentioned earlier he reminded me a little bit of a Zelig popping up in narratives of the more famous I'm actually reminded almost more so of a story my friend told me about Major Deegan. If any of you have ridden the oh-so-delightful Major Deegan Expressway in New York, and I always wondered why it was named that, uh, named the Major Deegan. I had never heard of Major Deegan. Uh, My friend did some digging and found out he was a somewhat minor but extraordinarily popular figure among politicians when he died in the 30s, and his friends just pushed really hard to get something named after him. So the the approach road leading from the 
Triborough to the Grand Concourse was named in his honor, and that eventually became an expressway in the Robert Moses expansion. So uh, my friend's takeaway from all this was that Major Deegan was a popular and lovable drinking buddy, and that got him a road named after him that we remember long after he's gone. And it seems to me that uh, Goosen was a very popular fellow, uh, likable enough to make some good friends, perhaps a drinking buddy for some of these. And all of that helped parlay his way to, shall we say, an unformidable life. As indicated, as alluded to earlier, Goosen did pass away on February 26, 2011, uh, died of a heart attack at the age of 65. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go reread Ball 4, watch the Royal Tenenbaums, and think back about the unformidable Greg Goosen. Thank you very much for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. Follow Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find this and all of our truly amazing pods wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave, subscribe to them if possible. Leave us a review. It really helps us out. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR. And the show is at Unformidable. Thank you. And someday... Once again, let's go.